We'll turn now for the second scripture reading from God's word to Luke chapter 19 as we continue our sermon series through the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19. And we're going to read verses 28 through 44. Luke 19, 28 through 44. I invite you to stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. Once again, this is the word of the Lord to you, his people. Pay attention to it. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had said. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their clothes on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. For all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and earth and glory and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray that at the time of your visitation, even during the preaching of your word, that we would know the things that make for peace. We pray that we would know the Lord Jesus Christ and that in hearing this text now read and, and, and now preached, that we would have hearts that believe and that what is true of, about you would not be hidden from our, our sight, but would be plain and known and proclaimed and loved. We pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, asking for the blessing of the preaching of your word. Amen. Are we there yet? That's a question parents are probably familiar with. If you've ever taken your kids on a road trip, are we there yet? Usually that question starts ringing out, um, I don't know, maybe even 20 minutes into the trip. You know, you're heading down to the beach and right away, you know, 
come on, dad, how, how long is this going to take? Yeah, 13 hours. You better just cool it because we've got a long way to go. But, but another thing that you might have noticed is when you go on those family vacations, it's the closer you get to your destination that it seems those cries ring out. Are we there yet? No, we're just 20 minutes away. Well, are we, are we there yet? Five minutes away. And the closer you get, the more that starts to get asked. Well, I don't know about you, but I've been feeling a little bit like that as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. It's been all the way since chapter nine that Jesus has clearly told us, I am setting my face like Flint to go to Jerusalem. Pack your bags, get ready for the trip, disciples, because we're going. And it's been a long journey, hasn't it? Um, boy, it might, it might even be about a year that we have been on this journey with Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem. And all the way along the, the road, it seems like the, that are we there yet moment has rang out where, the, where Luke has reminded Theophilus, who he's writing this gospel to, reminded us that Jesus is drawing closer and closer and closer and he's got a mission there. And everything you've heard is leading up to this grand moment. Are we there yet? Not quite. We are not quite to Jerusalem. In fact, uh, in the weeks that we have, uh, in, in the sermons we've heard preached, in the weeks leading up to this, we've noticed that Jesus is intensifying his message to disciples. He wants us to know once he's gone and gone to, gone to, to the Father, ascended to the, to the Father, and once we're waiting, he wants us to know what it's like to live as disciples. You remember last week, Jesus taught us about that great parable of the pounds, the parable of the minus. That uh, there is, that Jesus is like a nobleman, like a king that is going to a far country. And while he's there, he's given, he's made this rich investment in us, a gospel investment. And he calls us to be the kind of people that put that gospel investment to use. See, that's the kind of teaching that we've heard leading up to Jerusalem. But now that are we there yet question has reached a fever pitch. And everything we just heard in that parable is pushing us to ask a question. Who is this nobleman in the parable? Who is this king? And what's he going to do when he gets to the city? This is the last sermon before Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. It's called the triumphal entry. You could call it the triumphal approach. Because by the end of this sermon, we're going to see Jerusalem. It's going to be, you can almost picture it sprawled out before you. We're going to make our way with Jesus through the stations of his entrance. And as, as we go with him, as we stop with him at several locations on the way, we're going to see that Jesus shifts from his questions, his urgent questions about discipleship. And now he, he shifts to an urgent message about who he is and what that means. So we're going to learn four things about this king, this new and different kind of king that Jesus announces himself to be. The first thing you need to know about this king is that Jesus goes into pains in this text to show us that he is the promised king. The promised king. You'll notice that throughout this entire passage, Jesus is, he's, um, he's shifted gears 
They're getting so close to Jerusalem that everyone can feel it. There's energy in the air. It is pulsing through the crowds. And now Jesus suddenly shifts. Before, he wanted to go to pains to, 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 to uh, hush the crowds who were speaking who he was and say, not yet. Don't, don't tell the world yet that I'm the Messiah. But now, it's like he just can't stop himself from, uh, from saying, that's exactly who I am, and don't forget it. It's this shift that happens. Notice what he does. He goes out of his way to bring all these different symbols and pictures together that speak this clear message. And the first is this donkey. Seven verses spent talking about a donkey. Well, that's interesting. What is Jesus doing, you know, with this whole, you know, sending his disciples to get a donkey? And, and, and by the way, a donkey that has never been ridden before. It needs to be a young donkey, a baby donkey. And so here Jesus' disciples go to secure this donkey so that their master can ride into Jerusalem upon it. What is this all about? Well, we're going to take a look at three key Old Testament passages that help us to understand what Jesus is saying about his kingship as he rides into Jerusalem. Turn with me first to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, where you'll see one of the first prophecies about a king from the line of Judah. Genesis 49 verse 10 says this. The scepter, the royal scepter, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. As early as Genesis chapter 49, there's this prophecy that there is this coming king, this one who will bear the scepter who will crush God's enemies and bring the nations into, into obedience. And he's going to be one whose symbol is a donkey. Even a young donkey. And it's no mistake that as we see in the Old Testament, David and Solomon and Saul even, they are men who have donkey narratives. Right? We see stories that intricately weave these kings of Israel with donkeys, these, these, these sons who are inheriting the throne. And so we even see a scene in which David puts his son Solomon on a donkey and rides him into Jerusalem. It's no mistake then that Jesus is picking this symbol as a symbol of royalty riding the donkey into town, into the royal city, into the capital city, just like Solomon did, just like David did, just like Saul did. The great kings of Israel associated with donkeys. And now Jesus says that what they did was just a dress rehearsal. Now he takes up the role. Now he performs this street theater as the real deal. And he not only uh, picks this donkey, but notice what he does. He claims it. He does what only royalty can do. You know, it was, it was the royal right of a king in ancient society to claim property, to borrow property for his use whenever it was his need. You know, so if, if a king needed a stool to sit upon, he would say, um, bring that stool here so I can take a seat. Well, here, 
royal king Jesus, the, the Messiah, the messianic king says, I need a donkey. Go tell his owners, the Lord, the king has need of it. And not only that, but notice what the disciples do when Jesus actually has the donkey in front of him. They place him upon it. The word so carefully chosen to show that they are enthroning him upon this beast so he can ride into the city. So there's the first Old Testament symbol coming into picture, this donkey associated with Jesus's kingship. But notice what he does. He rides the donkey through the city or not through the city yet. He rides the donkey towards the city past several landmarks, Bethany, Bethpage. He's making his way. And and the, and the text makes this special notice that he passes over the Mount of Olives. Now, this is extremely important because, again, another Old Testament piece of the puzzle coming together. Zechariah 14.4 says that in those last days, the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that last day, his feet shall stand upon what? The Mount of Olives. See, the Mount of Olives has had this rich place within the tapestry of, of, um, of the predictions of the coming king. In fact, the last time we saw a king on the Mount of Olives was actually a king going the opposite direction from Jesus. Going up the Mount of Olives, going past Bethany, past Bethpage, in the other direction. It was King David as he fled from his rebellious son, Absalom, who had taken over the city and moved in and and David out of his fear and as, as a fearful king ran in the opposite direction, going out up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went over the sins of his son, Absalom. Guess what? Here's like this Lord of the Rings picture. The king is now returning, going over the Mount of Olives, down into the city, Reclaiming his rightful throne, doing what David could never do, bringing order and peace and that lasting Messiah's message to the city of Jerusalem. He's the returning king coming down the Mount of Olives. What we need to see here is that Jesus is in control of everything happening here. He's not, he's not some dude who went viral because of some video he, you know, just, he posted on YouTube. And then you know, there it goes. And suddenly, overnight, he's famous. He's not someone who just happened to have kingship fall into his lap. Like one of the royal princes. No, he is the king of kings. He's not, as one liberal uh, critical scholar said, a man who was caught up in the cogs of history. Just, you know, the, the, the wrong man at the wrong place. Ended up in Jerusalem. Thought he was king. No, Jesus is the king of kings who turns the cogs of history, who narrates all of this. Think about what that means. It means that Jesus in this passage is like conducting this this orchestra where he's bringing all these different pieces and parts into place to point to one message. I'm the real deal. If you put your faith in me, you're putting your faith in the real deal. I'm the promised king. The promised king that all the Old Testament pointed to. I'm the descendant of David who will crush the enemies and bring lasting peace. That's the message. And guess what? The people get it. The people hear it loud and clear. Uh, During this time, 
as Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem, again, just beautifully planned out the orchestration of all this. He just happens to be going up to Jerusalem at the same time that everyone is is flooding into Jerusalem for Passover. In a city that was about 40,000 people would swell during this week to about 200,000. Just people pouring into the city, finding every nook and cranny to stay in. And here, and and, and during this time, the atmosphere was pumping with political anticipation. Could this be the year that the king arrives? Could this be the year that the Roman government is thrown from off of our shoulders? Could this be the year of peace? And so when they see all these different pointers pointing to this one Jesus and they hear of the miracles he's done, guess what? The people get it and they start singing Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But guess what? They supply one word that the psalm doesn't say. Blessed is the king, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so here these people are throwing down their clothes before the king in a kind of royal carpet, you know, as the, as the royal motorcade makes its way towards Jerusalem. The scene is celebratory. And, and, and when the Pharisees say, Jesus, tell them to stop making this connection. Tell them they're wrong. Rebuke them for calling you king. He says, you don't get it, do you? If they didn't say it, the rocks would cry out, you're king. You're the Messiah. So the procession makes its way down off the top of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is, is a decent size of the mountain. It actually goes from, you know, 3,000, 3, uh, the, the Dead Sea is 3,000 feet below uh, sea level all the way up to the Mount of Olives that overlooks Jerusalem. And as Jesus makes his way there, we start to see another facet of him as king. He is the promised king. But if you really look closely at the pictures pointing to him, there's something else. It's almost comical what's happening, really. Here he comes on this little tiny donkey. It's a baby donkey. Now, why would a king ride into battle on a baby donkey? You know, the Romans, if Roman soldiers saw this scene happening, they probably weren't scared. They probably weren't offended. They probably laughed. Because it looked the opposite of the mighty war horses, you know. Imagine in your head the Clydesdales, you know, that come clomping in, you know, and, and up on the top of one of these horses is a king, and flanking him is his 12 generals. Well, here comes Jesus, stumbling in on a, on a, on a little donkey. And alongside that baby donkey is not 12 honored generals, but 12 bumbling disciples. One who's going to deceive him, one who's going to deny him. And all the rest that are going to go scattering in in just six days. This is like the equivalent of a commander of an army leading his troops into battle in a smart car. Not a big tank, but a smart car, you know, honking his horn as he goes. It's comical. It's it's, it's silly. But, but, But you need to know that Jesus is doing this to send a message, a message that is going right over the heads of everyone around him. They're not going to get it. Not until they see the ultimate fulfillment of it. Zechariah 9.9. We heard this read this morning by Pastor Brad. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble 
and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. This is the passage that Jesus is fulfilling as he rides into town. And, and yes, it says he's that promised messianic king, but it also says something else. That king is a humble king. He is a lowly king, a meek and gentle king. Onward, Jesus rides. But before him, sprawled out in, on the road, at the end of his destination is the secret plan, the plan that no one gets. They'd get it if they'd, if they'd just look at the clue. The clue is pointing. They'd get it if they heard his words. What is his secret plan? That Jesus is, is only going to bring victory, ultimate victory, by taking on himself the worst of sin and death. What's at the end of his journey? Where's the donkey leading him step by step? To the cross. And this this humble Savior knows that at the end of the road, he's going to hear a different kind of parade, different kind of voices. Those voices, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are going to fade. And what's going to rise? Crucify him, crucify him. We do not want this man to reign over us. He's not our king. Every step of the way, the humble king knows that he's going down to Jerusalem, humbling himself, lowering himself. And every step of the way, he carries with him his secret weapon, his body, his body to be broken. He's not coming to march to the front of Pilate's palace and take up his, his and, 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 and lead a coup against the Roman authorities. He's marching his way to the temple and then to the cross where he is going to claim for himself a people of his own, own possession and he's going to lay down his life to deal with the enemy that no one singing around him really wants to confront the enemy of sin and death. Philippians 2.7 says this, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you know what it is that makes this entry so triumphal? It's not what people think it is. It's not the cheering. It's not, it's not the parade. It's not the theatrics. What's so triumphal is the destination that Jesus is going to. The cross and an empty tomb. He's on his way to that royal exaltation, but first down the slope of the Mount of Olives, down to Jerusalem, down to the grave. That's what's set out before Jesus, and he knows it. Every clomp of the donkey's feet, he knows that's where he's going. Perhaps that's why when Jesus reaches an overlook, heading down the Mount of Olives, he takes in that breathtaking scene. Here's that point where Jesus... 
turns the corner and starts heading down the Mount of Olives. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know, uh, one of the favorite tourist places to go is this very location, this lookout on the, on the peak of the Mount of Olives. And from there, you can look out. You can see the whole city. It's amazing. Stretched out before you. And at that moment, the people must have cried even louder. Blessed is he who comes to the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king. And, and cheered because there's the city that their king is going to. But while everyone around him is praising, Jesus is sobbing, heaving cries. It's, you know, it's the kind of cries described here are the kind of cries that shake your body. Uncontrollable, heaving sobs. Verse 41, and when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Notice the dramatic contrast we see here between what the people are saying and what Jesus was feeling. Because that contrast is going to, to show you the tensions of the triumphal entry. Because the triumphal entry is triumphant, but it's also tragic. Because the people were singing praises and calling Jesus their king, but Jesus sees that they didn't really know who he is. Jerusalem doesn't really get it. If they really knew what kind of king he was, if they really knew he was going to a cross, if they really knew that he did not have in his mind to bring first and foremost this political victory, they didn't want to, they wouldn't be crying this out at all. They'd be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And so Jesus weeps, these sobs, they're not sentimental sobs. They're not weak sobs. They are, they are the kind of crying that happens when a man weeps over sin, when a savior weeps over sin. Did you know that your savior is more distraught over your sin than you are? Did you know that your Savior is more heartbroken over a lost world, over a dark, a darkened city, a city darkened by sin, than we are? We need to see this image, and it, it should be a convicting image. First, that we would take our sin seriously and say, if my Savior weeps over sin that much, then I ought to weep over my sin. If, if my Savior is that heartbroken over a lost world that refuses him, then I ought to have that kind of compassion upon Dayton, Ohio, sprawled out before me. Why does Jesus weep over this city? It's because he knows that they do not know the things that make for peace. In other words, repentance and faith in a humble Messiah who comes proclaiming peace. They don't want that. And neither does anyone who hears the gospel of Jesus and turns away and says, yeah, that's not for me. That's not for me. And Jesus, Jesus tells us this sobering but honest truth. The tragic end of the triumphal entry is this, that people will hear about Jesus. They will see him publicly crucified and still their hearts will be so hard that they are like those servants in the parable of the Minas that said, that say, we don't want this king. We are not his servants. We reject him. Jesus says, that's about to happen to me in Jerusalem. And because of that, 
because of their hard-heartedness, judgment is coming. Judgment first in 70 AD. That's what's being described here. It's a full-out attack upon the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, that's coming because they didn't hear my warning of salvation when I came bringing it to them. But then that same judgment is going to come to all on the last day that reject the offer of the gospel that Jesus brings. And so that's why he weeps. And it's that weeping that really echoes through our ears at the end of of this triumphal entry and this triumphal and tragic entry. It's because we need to hear that weeping. We need to hear that weeping because it comes to us as a warning. We too can have the king publicly paraded before us and turn our hearts away from him. Here's the real, here's the real question that jumps out to you. You've heard that Jesus is the promised king. You've heard that he's the humble king and you've heard that he is the weeping king. And so here's the question for you. What do you say about Jesus? What do you say about that king? How are you going to respond to his moment of visitation, his his proclaiming truth in your midst? Because right now, Jesus is publicly paraded before you, not physically to the eye, but, but through the preaching of his word. He has been marched through your midst. Every Sunday that happens, and in Jesus wants you to know that you must, if he says If he is who he says he is, then you must worship him. He deserves your worship. He deserves your praise. And just as much as he deserves your worship, you need his salvation. Because there is a day when Jesus will parade again publicly. And it's not on a baby donkey, but on a white horse. Revelation 19. And in his hand will be a rod of iron. And he... And and on his thigh will be the words, King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus says that you must call upon him today before he comes with that great power and majesty to bring judgment upon those that do not listen to him. Friends, there's only one way to receive a humble king with humility. Lower yourselves. Submit to this king that parades through your midst. Declare your need for this king and the salvation that he brings. Say to the king, I can't have peace with God without you. I need what you've done. Take your lives and lay them before his feet. Like the people laid their clothes before the king on the way to Jerusalem. Have you done that? Have you you called out to that savior? Are his praises on your lips this morning? Now is the time. Now is the time of his visitation. Now is the time of the humble king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make us willing and able to believe the promises of the gospel. The king is paraded through our midst. Let us even now be found faithful in laying down our very lives at his feet. Lord, when he comes again in his power to judge all the world, may we be found safe under his kingship. 
because we believed in him. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.